Good afternoon. Welcome to Navarra FM here on London's number one radio station. You know exactly what I'm talking about. It's Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Aaron Mastani, at Aaron Mastani on Twitter. Today I'm joined by none other than the author of The Candidate, Jeremy Corbyn's Improbable Path to Power. That's right. We've got Alex Nunns in the house. Hello, Alex. Hello, Aaron. Uh, Alex, before we proceed to obviously talk about the show, um, the, show the, the book, and uh, I think a really incredible, timely intervention, by the way, and the whole conversation around Jeremy Corbyn and what next for Labour. Where can people keep up to date with your work? What's your Twitter handle? Do you have a website? Uh, so on and so forth. Uh, well, my Twitter handle is Alex Nuns, A-L-E-X-N-U-N-N-S. And people can keep up with my work just through there or through my blog, which is where there's muck.wordpress.com. Um, and you can buy this book, The Candidate, from orbooks.com. That's orbooks.com. Or Amazon. But people shouldn't do that because... Well, actually, no, because this, tax, right? this company, or books, they, they have a kind of industrial political reason for not selling through Amazon. I didn't know that. I did not know that. Well, there you go. You learn something new every day. Um, so, obviously, we'll be talking about the book and, and not only Jeremy Corbyn's victory this summer, but, of course, last summer. That's the majority of what it seeks to cover. Before we do that, let's just talk about some of the praise... The book has earned because it really has got some high praise from, from some very high sources. Take the words of John McDonnell. This is a fascinating account of why, as well as how, Jeremy became leader of the Labour Party and transformed our politics. For anyone engaged in the movement, understanding precisely how we came to be where we are can only make us more effective as we go forward. That's why Alex Nunn's book is so important. In a similar vein... Your boy Clive Lewis, Navarra media supporter Clive Lewis, tweeted, I'm not usually into tweetvertisements, but at Alex Nunn's book on uh, Jeremy Corbyn's rise is the best research account I've seen to date. Uh, so a few months ago, Jer James Butler interviewed uh, Richard Seymour regarding his own still relatively new book, Corbyn, The Strange Rebirth of Radical Politics. Despite being unable to do that show, I've read that uh, book. I've read Richard's book. It's outstanding. That's out of the first though. As well as Rosa Prince's uh, Comrade Corbyn, which I have to say is a lot weaker than both this and Richard's work. Uh, and in terms of the nuts and bolts of what actually happened in the summer of 2015, I think this particular account is unparalleled. Richard's book is also great. It's more of a I guess a macro analysis regarding the Labour Party right now and how to situate it for better and worse within the crisis of social democracy. But in terms of a chronological account of the rise of Jeremy Corbyn, of how a guy who was the 200 to 1 outsider became the leader of Her Majesty's opposition, I, I do think this is fantastic. And I really commend you on it because it's a really riveting read. Did you enjoy writing it? Um, well, I enjoyed yeah, I enjoyed writing. Got a bit wearing after about ten months, but um, uh, no, it was good. I mean, the reason why I did it was because this is something completely extraordinary. You know, uh, something that I never expected to happen. The left leading the Labour Party. I've written about the Labour left for Red Pepper magazine um, over a number of years. Um, I mean, the kind of articles I was writing were call called things like "What became of the Labour left?" You know, it seems so hopeless. Um, so then, for Jeremy Corbyn to become leader just a few months after he, you know, most people in the country didn't know who he was. Um, was just something which was so unbelievable that I thought that there needed to be some kind of account for how this happened. And that wasn't obviously wasn't coming from the mainstream media, any of it, whether the supposedly left media or the right media. They were just more interested in denigrating Corbyn. Um, there was some of it coming out in articles and things, but I didn't feel that there was a, a, you know, a, a comprehensive account of how this thing happened in the detail as well as the broader kind of analysis. Yeah, so let's start with that point. You're saying that your personal interpretation, I think that was shared by many, myself included, was that the Labour left 
was at historic low. Uh, there was little potential, most importantly, I suppose, for anything significant. And that really, that nadir came, didn't it? Immediately following the general election last year in May 2015. And you write in the book of how there were people openly saying in and around the Labour left, well, maybe this is time now for a new party of the left. I mean, personally, I thought I thought it wasn't impossible, for instance, that you may get a couple of the factions of left MPs to the Greens. I certainly thought that was more likely, or the formation of a new left party was more likely than Jeremy Corbyn obviously winning the Labour leadership within a few months, which is what ultimately transpired. So let's just dwell on that for a moment. How bad was that sense of utter defeat and desolation for the Labour left in the weeks, really, after Ed Miliband lost the last general election to David Cameron? Well, at the towards the end of May, John McDonnell wrote an article for Labour Briefing, a magazine published by the LRC, the Labour Representation Committee, a kind of group on the, on the Labour left. And his article opened, these are the darkest hours for socialists in Britain since the Attlee government fell in 1951. So that's John McDonnell, you know, there's nobody more central to the Labour left than him, um, believing that it was, it was, as you say, at an adir. There were lots of other people um, saying similar things. Um, and there was also, as you say, there was this talk of a possible new party, which was fueled a lot by Unite, by this idea after the, um, especially after the Collins review, which I think we're going to go into, mm. um, changed the rules of how Labour elects its leader and basically was a, an attempt to to downgrade the role of the unions in the party. There was a lot of um, a lot of pressure within the unions to 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 disaffiliate from Labour from the left and from other people who were involved in other parties, but also just from people who thought it it wasn't good value for money. But also there was just this sense of you know. From in the unions of why are we why are we still putting up with this and unite Lem McCluskey started talking about a new workers party so that was in the air and people were, were genuinely considering whether that would be necessary especially because after the, the the defeat of Ed Miliband in May 2015 all the all of the pressure was coming from the Blairites they had the media um, ear they had uh, they were on a roll. They had a, it seemed they had a pre-prepared plan of coming out and saying um, Labour needs to appeal to aspirational voters, which they basically defined as, as middle-class voters who want to shop in Waitrose. That's what Tristram Hunt said, um, which is quite funny because in actual fact, in Tristram Hunt's own constituency, Stoke-on-Trent, um, Stoke Waitrose refused to open a shop in the, uh, in the, in the city because they said it wasn't upmarket enough. So for Tristram Hunt to, to suggest that was quite a brave electoral strategy. Clueless guy. <laughs> Clueless guy, yeah. Anyway. But yeah, so so that was that was the kind of the vibe at the time was that the, the the Blairites were determined to reclaim their party. The left was completely marginal to all of this. Nobody was listening, um, and it just seemed like it was you know a hopeless case. But then let's rewind to 2014. The kernel of what then became the promise of that summer's leadership election was, of course, the Collins report, uh, which effectively moved the selection process for the Labour leadership from that of an electoral college, one-third parliamentary Labour Party, i.e. Labour MPs, one-third members, one-third trade unions, to not even one member, one vote, one person, one vote, because you also got the uh, the introduction of the idea of a racist supporter, which Labour had adopted, appropriated, appropriated, whatever you want to call it, from the French Parti Socialiste, where they had a similar... Uh, product project in 2011 where you could pay one euro and you could vote on the candidate and this inspired alongside the whole primary vibe within the US Democratic Party many within Labour but particularly those on the right particularly Blairites who were very keen 
for the registered supporters aspect of the changes that came in after 2014. Yeah, it, it was that was absolutely a, a Blairite project. They imagined that there was this reservoir of centrist proto-Blairites just outside the party who weren't willing to join, but who, if you gave them the chance to easily vote in a leadership election, would, would flood in, would refloat the Labour ship, the new Labour ship. Um, and, you know, because they, they just imagined that the majority of people in the country are to the right of kind of Labour activists. Um, obviously, it didn't turn out like that, which is a, a huge historical irony. Um, but they, they genuinely believe that. So that was... they they basically brought the pressure for that. But that went back a little further than 2014 because they tried to get that in, in, I think, 2010 or 2011 in a, a consultation called Refounding Labour, um, which Miliband started about trying to reform the party structures. Um, and that was basically the Blairites' big kind of contribution to that process. And, and the, what their intentions were are revealed by how they wanted to do it then because they wanted registered supporters for, you know, a minimal fee or whatever to be put into the trade union section of the Electoral College. So it was a, an explicit attempt to dilute the influence of trade unionists because trade unionists had been the votes upon which Ed Miliband had, yeah. had uh, beaten David Miliband, the Blairite candidate, in 2010. So it was, it was just you know, blatant that that was what they were trying to do. By the time it got to the Collins Review, um, through the negotiations, through the, basically through the unions reluctantly acquiescing to some of these these demands, the entire electoral college was abolished. And actually the bigger factor, I mean, a, a lot of the attention is on the £3 voters, which came out of that. And the press obsesses about entryism and all that stuff. But the much bigger change was that the MPs no longer had a third of the vote. Because when just 100 and whatever or 200 and whatever MPs had a third of the choice over the leader of the Labour Party, that was effectively a veto on anyone from the left. Because if you didn't have that bulk of support within the parliamentary party, then you know, you, you, you were limited to just 66%, you know, if you've got everybody else. So there was, that made candidacies, candidacies like Diane Abbott's, for example, in 2010 appear completely pointless. You know, even people on the left <coughs> voted for Ed Miliband because he had a chance to beat the Blairite candidate, right. whereas Diane Abbott just didn't have a chance. Actually, the old system post-Blair seemed like a recipe for success when it came to the soft left, didn't it? Because, it, as we'll talk about later on, there weren't that many Blairites. There wasn't much of a Blairite element within the broader membership. Clearly, it wasn't favoured by the unions. Uh, so second or third place outrider would tend to be favoured with the old system, wouldn't it? And that was, that, was a, that was a major reason, I think, why some of the, as you write, I think, correctly so, why many, not just MPs, but commentators, journalists, strategists, if that's what you want to call John McTurn, uh, <laughs> favoured the 2014 Collins Report. Do you mind if I just quote a no, few? Yeah, go for it. Or, or would you like to do that? No, no, you do it. Okay, well... These are remarkably... This is actually the best bit of the book. The, the, two, be, the two best bits... I didn't write this bit. The two best bits... Well, you, 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 you sourced it, which is uh, just as important as a, as a writer. Uh, this, which is page 44, critical praise for the Collins Review, and then when you sort of do brief biographies of Guardian journalists during the latter period, the latter month, I guess, the final month of the uh, 2015 leadership race. So this is from John McTernan, Blairite advisor. 31st of January 2014. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Ed Miliband is more Blairite than Blair on party reform. This is from Mr. Mr. Blair himself, Tony. My boy Tony, 28th of February 2014, just uh, less than a month later. Quote, Ed has shown real courage and leadership on this issue. It's a long overdue reform that I should have done myself. It puts individual people in touch with the party and is a great way of showing how Labour can reconnect with the people of Britain. 
I won't do Tristram Hunt's one, but I'll do John Rental. And that came just several days after uh, Tony Blair's comments. Quote, Miliband's reform is the real thing and it will have real and welcome consequences. Whatever the result of the next general election, if Miliband loses, it means that, wait for it, the next Labour leader will be a Blairite. I mean, wow. They couldn't have got it more wrong. And it's not just one guy. It's basically, these are the most eminent voices within that faction within the party. Was that universally shared by the right? Well, actually, I mean, we're making fun of them. But to be honest, the left thought the same thing. You know, even uh, I interviewed Kat Smith, the Labour MP for this book, and even when the leadership election was already underway, she just assumed, because the right was so confident about the registered supporters system, she just assumed that this was going to favour the Blairites and that the left wouldn't be able to benefit from this. So although it's fun to, to, to quote what they said then, especially John Rental, um, you know, it, it, was, it was just generally held that this was going to help, um, help the Blairites because, you know, it was their project. And why would they be doing something if, it, if they didn't think they were going to benefit from it? You write how Owen Jones was despondent yeah. after the Collins Review? Yeah, because he said the point of being... I mean, Owen Jones' life is basically formed by having battles with people who criticise him. So he thought that he was always being attacked by people from smaller left parties. Why are you still in the Labour Party? What are you doing? You're deluded. Um, and he was saying, no, we need to stay in the Labour Party and fight because it has the link with the unions. That's the, the so-called organic link with the trade unions, which is why progressive change in this country can only come through, uh, you know, Labour. Um and obviously his position then was, was dramatically weakened by the Collins Review because it was a conscious attempt to water down that link. But that itself is a strange argument because the Electoral College only comes about in, what, 1981? Well, the, the Electoral College is a victory for the left and the Benite left, in fact, yeah. um, co collaborating with um, left elements in the trade unions, left trade unions, um, which have been developed well, throughout the 70s, basically. This kind of head of steam had been building up behind the left, an alliance between left people in trade unions and the constituency parties, which were increasingly Benite, or they didn't call themselves Benite at the time, but became what, what became Benism. Um, and then in 1981, this great victory happened at conference, a special conference, where they um, achieved this change to the rules so that trade unions, party members and MPs would share the decision in this electoral college system for choosing the leader. But prior to that, the leader had been chosen only by MPs. Um, in, in a ballot. In so Owen's point about the organic link with the trade unions as a result of the electoral colleges, it's quite historically contingent, right? I mean, it was only there for 33 years. Yeah, but there's a difference between... I mean, true, the, link, but, the link primarily was one of funding, wasn't it? And representation in parliament more than anything else. Yeah, but, but I mean, the, it's true that it had only been there for that time. But before then, there had been just... The way the Labour Party was run was an alliance between trade union bureaucracies and parliamentarians, basically. Mm. Um that's that's how it had been from the beginning. There weren't any individual members when the Labour Party was formed. It was it was formed to, to represent the union, the Labour movement in Parliament, and basically the power resided with the bureaucrats, the union bureaucrats, and the, and the MPs. So there was they were still fused together before that. But the the Collins Review, by the Collins Review, I mean what happened in between was that Blairism came along. I mean, well, first of all, there's an economic basis to this because Thatcher kicked the unions out of their corporatist role in the in the economy, um, which they had occupied after the Second World War. They've been a partner in, in the running of the British economy. They've even been treated as a partner by the state. Um, Thatcher, with, when she came in with the ideas that became known as neoliberalism, didn't have that need for the unions, um, wanted to break the consensus, broke the unions through the miners' strike, through other set-piece battles, print unions and so on, um, and basically removed them from that position. 
And that had an effect, a knock-on effect in the Labour Party because the corporatist role of the unions in the economy um, fostered an alliance with the Labour right in the Labour Party, basically, to, to control the party, those two centres of power. And without their, the unions being in that role anymore in the economy, I think um, when New Labour came to the fore, it, you know, they were openly antagonistic towards the unions. Um, and they wanted to, Blair actually said, we're making the decisions to the unions. They briefed against union leaders. Um, they did divide and rule tactics through the party machine to make sure the unions couldn't have, you know, strong influence over policy. Um, and so the unions were cast out in their party. And so that's the difference. When the Collins Review came along, it was an attempt to further that by, um, you know, mainly forces of the right in the Labour Party, but also Ed Miliband, to, to degrade further the position of the unions within their party. So they, you know, they it was seen as that and they felt they had to resist it. Although, uh, in, in actual fact, if Unite had voted against it, they probably would have been able to defeat it, but they couldn't because Unite was on the back foot over Falkirk, which is a complicated I mean, McCluskey, McCluskey, in your analysis anyway, seems far more optimistic about the prospects for the left with one person, one vote than the likes of Cat Smith or Owen Jones, in so much as he saw things that were negotiable. So, for instance, the... Uh, the number of MPs necessary to get on the ballot, they were initially saying 20%, 25%. McCluskey says, no, this has to be has to be lower, 15%. And he actually found a, a surprising ally, again, in the Blairites, because they understood realistically that they're actually numerically quite weak amongst uh, MPs in in Parliament on the Labour benches. Yeah, this is something that's not generally recognised. That the Blair, I mean, because they're so good at mouthing off the Blairites, because they have this access to the media and you can't open a newspaper without reading a comment from John Woodcock, you, you get this image that they're a dominant force within the Parliamentary Labour Party. Um, they're not. I think the, the, probably the centre of gravity in the Parliamentary Labour Party is on the right of the... Of, well, it's definitely on the right of the Labour Party, but even within the Parliamentary Party, it's, you know, to the right of centre in Labour terms. But it's not Blairite. The Blairites, basically, when, when Liz Kindle stood, she got 41 nominations. So she got six more than the 35 that were required, which is not a great way to go into a leadership election. She would have been hoping for much more. And the Blairites knew that they were vulnerable in terms of outright numbers. I mean, Mary Cray had to yeah, step I mean, down, right, because they couldn't get two candidates on the ballot effectively. Well, it was, I mean, after the, the general election, the Blairites, basically, it was difficult to find a Blairite who didn't want to stand for leader. They, they had, you know, I mean, you had Tristram Hunt, uh, Mary Cray, Liz Kendall, Chakra Munna for a little while. Um, you had Stella Creasy in, in the background in, who ended up in a deputy contest uh, along with Caroline Flint. You know, there were just loads of them. And they all have basically the same politics. And it's, it's slightly, I mean, they're always famed for being good organisers, but they were, they were a complete mess. They, had, they didn't decide who was the best, who was going to go forward and represent the Blairite cause. But in the end, they, they only had the numbers to get one candidate in, even though they had all these, these uh, putative contenders. Um, Mary Cray had to drop out. She didn't get, she, at one point she was, well, in, in, a, in a, a survey, a sort of unofficial survey of Labour members, she was on 3%, which was lower than none of the above, which is some kind of paradox. But um, uh, she, she couldn't get, Mary, I think she had uh, nine nominators when she needed 35. So basically the Blairites were in trouble if the threshold of the number of MPs that needed to be nominated, that you needed to get nominated, was raised significantly. Um, which was one of the proposals in the Collins Review, because the idea of the Collins Review was you, we, they had to get rid of the MPs. This is all getting complicated, so interrupt me if, if it's No, confusing. this is great. This is great. But Carry on, please. They had to... Um, the unions demanded that the MPs third of the Electoral College was abolished, and so that it would have this one-member, one-vote system, which, interest, interestingly, 
is, you know, would previously have been anathema to the, to the unions. It was a big turnaround that unions were backing one member, one vote. Um, and as a result of getting rid of the Electoral College, the kind of uh, quid pro quo for that was from, from Collins, who was this guy who was doing the, this review, we'll raise the threshold. So the MPs, okay, they're, they're giving away all this power over, you know, voting power in the actual leadership contest, but they'll be able to choose uh, a small list of candidates to make sure that, you know, there's nobody that's outside their their wish list uh, in the contest in a similar way to, I mean, the Tories usually do that. They get it down to two, you know. That's how their system currently works. Um, and so Collins proposed um, that they would have to get 25% of the parliamentary party, a quarter of the parliamentary party to nominate them. Obviously, that means there could be only ever be a maximum of four candidates, but probably three or two. Um, and the Blairites came in and, and realised that that would mean there wouldn't be a Blairite candidate, effectively. So they argued strongly against that behind the scenes. Unison, it's actually more Unison than McCluskey, Unison argued against it from the left. Obviously, the parliamentary left argued against it as well. And I think John Trickett was, was in the middle of those, those negotiations and played a role on behalf of Ed Miliband. And so this, this level got, got negotiated down from 25% to 15%, which, is, which turned out to be 35 nominations. It had previously been 12.5%, so 2.5% increase. The left still thought that was wrong because they still thought they, couldn't, they were convinced they wouldn't be able to get 35 nominations. Um, but it was better than it could have been. And it turned out that it was just possible for the left to get 35 nominations with a little bit of help and, and so on. And if... Uh... And if MPs, not necessarily favourable to their politics, didn't quite understand the implications of, of nominating uh, a left-wing candidate? Well, maybe. I mean, I'm not so convinced they didn't understand it. I think there were other kind of political calculations going on in that. In uh, that this is another thing I think it's really outstanding. You know, you really take... There's, a, there's so much work dedicated to this. And we were speaking beforehand and you told me this was written post-factum. This was written after Corbyn wins. And you're talking about the motivations and the context and the background variables for each nomination that... Um, Corbyn got before getting on the ballot from Margaret Beckett to uh, Rushnar Ali. So, I mean, really, really fascinating. And like I say, for a granular account, really, I mean, that's just uh, that's just exemplary of, I think, some of the real merits of this book. I'm going to have to push us on because sure. we haven't got long. Uh, and there is so much to cover. 2015, why did the Tories win the general election? <laughs> Easy question. Um, no. Um, well, basically, I mean, the, the general election result was a mess. I mean, that's the first thing. The, I say this in the book in the context of the Blairites launching their, their aspiration offensive after the election, where they said, oh, the, the problem is simple. We're not aspiring, we're not appealing to aspirational middle-class voters. Um, now, the, demographically, there's no evidence for that whatsoever. Um, Labour basically held steady among middle-class, upper-middle-class voters in 2015 compared to 2010 and compared to 20, uh, 2005, in fact, when they won. Um, among working-class voters, they'd had a, a cataclysmic decline from 20, 2005 to 2010, and they didn't really recover very much. So it was working-class voters that were the difference between the coalition of, of, um, of voters that Labour managed to pull together in 2015, which wasn't good enough, and that which they pulled together in 2005, which was good enough. Yet, in the aftermath of the election, the, the Blairites were coming out with this, this aspirational stuff. But when you actually then look into the detail of the election result... It's so. I mean, it's a, it is a mess. There's regional battles going on. There's national battles going on in Scotland. So there's um, uh, lots of different dynamics. Parties losing votes to other parties in in different proportions or opposite proportions in different parts of the country, and so on. And basically, the Tories came out of that on top because the Lib Dems they need they 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 needed a twenty. I can't remember the exact number. Twenty something seats to form a majority from where they had been. 
the, they got, I think, 27 from the Lib Dems. And most of that was just because the Lib Dems fell away in constituencies where the Tories happened to be in second place. And in lots of these constituencies, for example, in, in the Southwest, which has often gone on about as if the Tories had this kind of praying mantis strategy that they were going to devour their, their coalition partner, um, which I think they did try to do, but their vote share their, or their number of votes didn't go up in those constituencies. Um, all that happened was that their Lib Dem opponent, who previously had a majority of the voters, vanished. Um, and so that's... And this is the this is really the route, wasn't it, to a majority for the Tories? That shocking majority, which very few people predicted, was Lib Dem seats in the southwest primarily. Yeah, it was it was because the Lib Dems just vanished, and the Tories happened to be in second place in more Lib Dem constituencies than Labour did. Labour won seats from the Lib Dems where Labour was in second place. The Lib Dems, for example, you know, in London and so on, Labour won the seats more convincingly than the Tories did with an increased vote share. And the the, the Labour vote share went up in those other constituencies as well, in most of them anyway. Um, but not enough, obviously, because they're miles behind, not enough to, to take the seat. But, but yeah, I mean, it was, that was the big thing. Ob obviously, Labour's overall number of seats went down, even though their vote share went up and their number of votes went but up. You went by, what, a million votes, 800,000 votes? Yeah. Quite and, significant. Yeah, and it was 1.5% it was or something in the UK, but in England it was, it was plus three point something percent. So right. Not, I mean, that's not bad. I mean, it's not, obviously not good enough, but it's not the cataclysm that it seemed like, yet it didn't translate into, seat, into enough seat gains. But obviously the big factor there was Scotland um, lo losing 41 seats in Scotland. Yeah, yeah. And in, in terms of, this is the key statistic, and you highlight it in the book. Again, this is just a small part of the book. There's about 10, 15 pages where I think this is some of the best analysis actually I've read on the general election. Um, and you talk about head-to-heads. And again, this is only really relevant to England because the Tories don't, well, as Labour now, no longer exist north of the border in Scotland. But in terms of head-to-heads, the Tories took 10 seats off Labour and Labour took eight seats off the Tories. So the talk at the moment, of course, is about, you know, Tories winning a landslide election, worst election for Labour since 1931, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That may or may not transpire. That's just speculation. But there's not really any evidence for that on the back of the last election's results, are there? Well, they swapped roughly equal numbers of votes, the Tories and the Labour Party. Obviously, the Tories were already ahead, so that's not good. Labour needed to be taking yeah. more votes. But they, they yeah, they, they held station. If you consider how how uh, how chaotic the rest of the, the electoral results were, it's quite remarkable that in the midst of all this chaos, Labour and the Tories basically hold station against each other. And in terms of that Lib Dem vote, which crumbles and you said doesn't lead, or that does lead to Tory seats, it doesn't necessarily lead to increased shares, the vote or number of absolute votes uh, for the Tories in the Southwest. Uh, they go to, you're saying, other people. So they go to the Greens, UKIP, Labour. I mean, the Greens in the Southwest do phenomenally well in Bournemouth, You've got Bournemouth East and Bournemouth West, two Tory seats. I think the Greens went from like zero. I mean, the baseline data for the Greens, that's what makes their achievements in 2015 so remarkable. They didn't exist in 2010 in a lot of these seats. In May 2015, they get 8%, I think, in Bournemouth East, 8% in Bournemouth West. That is replicated across Dorset, well, much of Dorset, Devon, bits of Cornwall, Somerset. Uh, so, yeah, but it doesn't seem to be, and this is another thing, you don't mention that particular statistic in the book, how I think um, in Labour Tory marginals, I think there are 10 Labour Tory marginals, which the Tories win and the Green vote is bigger than the difference. And uh, you talk about, if you talk about this online, people are just like, oh my God, denialists, absurd. But the reality is, if those Green votes had voted Labour, Tory majority wouldn't exist, would it? 
Well, if you say so. You, you know the statistic better than I do. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, it's true that the, the Lib Dem vote fragmented and a lot of it went... I mean, the Greens got a million votes. You know, that's, that's a good performance. Um, that's a lot of people who are generally progressive people. So to ignore them is, for, for a left-of-centre party, any left-of-centre party, is, a, is a, bizarre, a bizarre mentality, I think. Um, I think Ed Miliband got like 9.3 million votes, I think, right? Tony Blair in 2005, I've said before that Blair got the same. He didn't get the same. It was slightly less. Tony Blair in 2005, I think, got 9.6 or something. It was a really terrible performance, and Labour still get this really unrepresentative majority. Uh, I think the Lib Dems in 2005 basically get two-thirds of the Labour vote. So actually, that was their high point in terms of seats, although not vote share. That comes in 2010. And I think the Labour get like 9.7, and like the Lib Dems get like 6. Three, so they get two thirds of the votes of a party which gets an overall majority in Parliament, yet they only get fifty seats. Yeah, I mean it's just remarkable. Yeah. And you look at that data, then you look at twenty ten, twenty fifteen, and you look at the trajectory Labour on not just from ninety seven actually, but from John Smith polling, uh, really highly, basically after Maastricht, Labour are going to form majority government after nineteen ninety three, and it's obvious where it ends up. And when you throw the SNP into the mix. I think Ed Miliband's performance, so we don't want to stick on this too long to so talk about Jeremy Corbyn, Ed Miliband's performance last year was actually pretty good. Like you say, in England, it was, you could argue, it was actually as good as Labour could probably do in terms of absolute numbers. Well, hopefully, I mean, I'm not sure it's as good as Labour could, could ever do. With, with that kind of candidate, in that, I mean... But they still, had, they still had this calamitous loss of working class people voting for them. Oh, of course, no, it was a weak campaign with weak, I think with weak leadership, weak policies, but it... When I think all that, I thought he was a terrible candidate, a terrible politician. But then when you actually look at the numbers, you look at the trends, you go, this is actually quite impressive. I mean, it's surprising almost. Well, certainly the, number, the underlying numbers were better than the, the seat outcome because the seat outcome was, was obviously very bad. They lost seats because of the, mainly because of Scotland. Um, and the underlying performance was not quite as bad. I mean, I don't think we should say it was good either, though. Oh, no, it was terrible. But given this was, this was commonly viewed as the worst election for Labour since 83, although, of course as you identify in terms of actual votes it's much better than 2010 I think Gordon Banks is like 29% you know mm. when Corbyn is polling 29% uh, at the turn of the year if we go this is dreadful it's like Gordon Brown got this in a general election only only, uh, only five six years ago but let's not stick on this for too well, long just on the election thing though yeah. the, the other point which I think is really interesting which I found interesting because um, I read basically all the analysis from, the, from for example British election study the academics and stuff um, and the most amazing thing I found was this, the idea, because one of the big Blairite claims or, or just Labour right claims was that Labour lost because it was too right. far to the left under, under Ed Miliband. Um, and when you look at the, the, the British election study, which basically interviews over 30,000 people over a period of time, has a relationship with these people. Um, it asked them to put the parties on a left to right spectrum where zero is left, 10 is right. It put, put Labour at three. Um, it put the Tories at eight. So the Tories were further from the centre ground than Labour, and the Tories won, the, won a majority. So whenever a commentator pops up in a newspaper or on TV And what's saying, the source for this? It's the British election study. Yeah. Whenever a commentator pops up saying um, elections are always won from the centre ground, the last one we had wasn't. Yeah. The party that was on the centre ground, according to voters, they perceived the Lib Dems to be most in the centre. Lib Dems got completely wiped out. Yeah. And a University of Oxford report, you write this on page 61, 
Quote, using British election study data found that negative perceptions of Ed Miliband had a small effect on Labour's vote share, but not as large as others have suggested, and concluded that if Cameron and Miliband had swapped parties, this would have yielded relatively little change in vote share. So again, personal approval ratings looked at retrospectively didn't really count for much in terms of what happened in the last general election. There's a really nice uh, stat as well, and again, We've got just under half an hour left. You're listening to Navarra FM on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's number one radio station. I'm talking to Alex Nunns, author of The Candidate, Jeremy Corbyn's Improbable Path to Power. Yep. I said that without my notes in front of me. <laughs> um, this is a great statistic. Uh, you're talking about Labour did really well amongst 18 to 24-year-olds in the last election, and they do really well amongst um, uh, working class, what are called DE voters, well, they did really well, but not compared to what they previously did. Right. Well, exactly. So hold up. Um, the problem is, of course, that only 57% of working class DE voters cast the ballot in 2015 compared to 75% of AB voters. And your point is, this is quite new, it's actually. Only since 1987. Right. Working class people used to have the same rate of turnout as middle class people until 1987. And I think it's quite interesting that that coincides with um, the breakdown of the kind of traditional labour movement identity, if you like, um, the abandonment of, of social change as a, as a goal of politics, you know, the, the, the loss of the language of class from politics. And, I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean there's definitely a causal link, but, but, but since then, um, working class turnout has gone down and middle class turnout stayed the same. But the point is, Labour is still winning those voters. It's still winning them, but they, they There's fewer of them turning exactly. out. They're not exactly. going Tory. I mean, that's something yeah. that you'd hear. Often from Guardian journalists, let's call them SDP apologists, Michael <laughs> White, uh, Polly Toynbee and so on and so forth. They would say, oh, they've been persuaded by, like you said, this mythical idea of a sense ground. Nothing really to confirm that or back it up or say it wins general elections. Uh, they would say, well, those people are now voting Tory or they've left the Labour Party because it's not to adopt Tristram Hunt or Liz Kendall's phraseology uh, aspirational. Yeah. Uh, and if you're looking at, and we really need to leave it at this, if you're looking at a path to Labour forming a government, one presumes it's based on elevating turnout amongst precisely those voters, which, like you say, only really goes down after 87, and, of course, increasing a turnout from young people, 18 to 24s. And I think their vote for Labour in 2010, 2015, rather, goes up as mm. it does amongst ethnic minorities. I mean, there are a few things mm. that Miliband does, and these resemble Obama's coalition in the States. Uh, but of course, the numbers, the absolute numbers of BME voters in the UK are lower, and it's not quite as pronounced. But there's some interesting trends there which suggest, well, if that was developed, Labour could actually be quite competitive in, not just even in Britain, in England. Yeah, I mean, it's a really hard thing to do to, to expand the electorate, to get people who don't vote to vote. And surveys show that people who don't vote are not necessarily... They don't say that they're more likely to vote Labour than people who do vote. But, I mean, historical data suggests that if you get those groups to vote, then they will, um, if, the, if you politicise them, if you engage them in politics, then they're more likely to back the Labour Party. I mean, Obama, in 2008, the turnout for the US presidential race in 2008 uh, is up 7%. On 2000, and when you think how close 2000 was, I mean, Al Gore, of course, loses because of a Supreme Court judgment in Florida. That's counterintuitive because Obama won so big, that was so tight, and yet there's a seven percent increase. You could say there's almost less incentive to vote. Case in point, 1992 in in Britain, huge turnout because people thought it was going to be very close, which it was. Um, so yeah, that's something that Labour would probably have to replicate to be to be competitive. Let's move on. Okay, um, how did Corbyn become the candidate? I mean, because he wasn't the instinctive choice for the 
the people that mattered on the left initially, was he? No, there was this process that went on in May um, after the general election when, when there was this sense of general despair of people trying to find, some people trying to find a candidate such as activists, there were lots of uh, left Labour activists, um, people on social media and so on, groups like Red Labour, um, who were uh, originally an internet-based uh, response to Blue Labour, um, and plus people behind the scenes such as John Landsman, uh, uh, Campaign for Labour Party Democracy, um, the LRC, the Labour Representation Committee, these groups wanted to stand a candidate. But... People like John McDonnell, who stood up at a meeting, a left platform meeting just after the election, said there's no chance we're going to get 35 nominations. We shouldn't march people up to the top of a hill if we're going to just disappoint them because that will be worse. He was against it. Uh, Owen Jones was against it because he was uh, terrified that the left would be crushed if the left stood a candidate and that it would, uh, it would, kind of, it would put the left back. So there was, a, there was a basically a split. Um, on the left as to the, the merits of standing a candidate. Obviously, nobody thought that they were going to win. The point of standing a candidate was just to to have someone there to raise the arguments, to go on the media, to argue against austerity, to try to bring about some political consciousness. And if they got into the race, if they got the nominations and got the chance to, to have a campaign, to build a left organisation, which was actually a, an explicit aim from the very beginning. What became Momentum was an idea from the very beginning, which John Landsman in particular was extremely So keen on. Landsman wanted basically a success for him meant having sedimentary networks and structures after the event yep. that would be able to create something bigger than... So the Campaign for Labour Party Democracy has been around since the 80s, for instance. Yep. 70s, yeah. 70s, sorry, 70s. yes, you're right. Um, he wanted something that was quite different, right? Yeah, and, and a leadership quite campaign... Quite propositional, forward-thinking, exactly. on the front foot. Exactly, and a, a leadership campaign. And also, there was a, the, I mean, the Labour Representation Committee, the LRC, is a group that was formed to be the same kind of thing, but it, it, by 2015 it had become quite bogged down in bureaucratic stuff. So, yeah, the, the idea was to form this new organisation and a leadership campaign is a great way of doing that because you're obviously you're energising people, you're getting contact details, you're doing rallies and, and uh, meeting people. So that was basically what the sides were. Um, Landsman wanted... Um, I interviewed Landsman extensively for this book. In fact, I spoke to him for eight and a half hours at one point. He, uh, he wanted... Um, John Trickett, John McDonnell or Michael Meacher, those were his three favourite candidates because he said they were all conventionally credible candidates that you could kind of uh, imagine as the leader of the Labour Party. Um, but none of them wanted to do it. Michael Meacher, I think, he, was, he probably already knew he was quite ill. He died, uh, sadly, shortly afterwards. Um, John McDonnell didn't want to do it. He'd done it twice before. He thought there was no chance of him getting on the ballot. He'd also had a heart attack or heart problems recently, um, so he didn't think it was wise. And John Trickett just didn't want to be in it. Um, he'd been in the shadow cabinet. He'd been Gordon Brown's PPS. He, was, he thought that he was too kind of connected to the leadership to represent a fresh left position. So then... He was quite close to Ed Miliband as well, right? He was yeah, in the shadow was, cabinet. Yeah, he was very close to Ed Miliband. Um, and so then he was kind of a... John Trickett was kind of an interesting guy because he's like a conduit between the left and the Labour Party leadership. Um, and then you get... Um, you get the, the activists demanding that someone stands. They, they initially focused on Ian Lavery, former minor. He didn't want to do it. He came out and said he was going to nominate uh, Andy Burnham, which annoyed everybody because it was really early in the race and there was no need to, uh, to, to throw away any leverage he might have had that early. Um, and so there was basically despair for a good few weeks where they thought that um, the people who wanted to stand at a, can a candidate, not only did they have to overcome the scepticism of the people who didn't, but they also didn't have any, any volunteers. 
And remarkably, nobody uh, nobody seemed to think of, of Jeremy Corbyn. Um, John Lansman, for example, it was only towards the end of May when he went to a drinks reception with, uh, for, hosted by Chulo, the trade union Labour Party liaison organisation, which is a kind of... Uh, brings together the the, the top the labour affiliated unions. It used to have its headquarters in in Labour HQ, but it got kicked out. <laughs> Relations weren't necessarily that good. Um, Make space for the uh, the migration mugs, probably. Yeah, yeah exactly. Some useless thing they do there. Yeah. Um, their national officer Byron Taylor. Uh, he spoke to John Landsman at this this drinks reception, and Landsman went through the, the whole list of possible candidates, and Byron Taylor said, "Well, it's got to be Jeremy." And uh, Landsman said, well, wh- "Why? Why Byron? Why should it be Jeremy?" And uh, Byron Taylor said, well, he's got all the right policies. Um, people respect him. People will vote for him. And he hasn't got any enemies. He hasn't got anybody who's going to consciously, you know, deliberately set up a campaign to stop him getting on the ballot. And that had never occurred to John Landsman. And, and from that point, he became a strong advocate of Jeremy Corbyn's standing. He had other people, um, his friend Kat Smith, who worked, used to work for Jeremy Corbyn. She thought it would be a good idea. Um, and then they had a campaign group meeting. Well, it wasn't, well, nobody knows if it was the campaign group. The people who have always been in the campaign group call it the campaign group, which is this parliamentary group which was formed by Tony Benn in the aftermath of the split with Neil Kinnock in, in the 80s. The new people like Cat Smith and Clive Lewis, they, they went to these meetings. They didn't realise that they were in the campaign group. But anyway, um, they had one of their meetings. Um, they discussed whether they should stand a candidate. Jeremy Corbyn said, they, they went through the options. They said, nobody will, will do it. Then Jeremy Corbyn said in that meeting, what, what about if I stand? Um, and apparently, according to Clive Lewis, there was silence. Nobody knew if it was a good idea. The meeting was inconclusive. Then there was a week in which, basically, there were some people lobbying Campaign for Labour Party Democracy, Landsman, Byron Taylor, um, Cat Smith. Corbyn was going around talking to people, asking whether it was a good idea. He spoke to one of his, uh, one, somebody who became a senior um, player in his campaign just uh, the night before actually deciding to do it. And, and he said, do you think I should do it? And the, this guy said, yeah, you, you need to do it. John McDonnell at this point was still anti it, still against it. Um, On what grounds? He just just because he thought they wouldn't get the nominations. He thought it would be it would it would be worse than not doing anything. People like Clive Lewis argued that not doing anything would be seen as weaker. Um, I mean, John McDonnell's been through this twice, right? He he did it in 2007, did it in 2010. So he knows what it's like to to try and build a campaign to to achieve that and then to fall short. And he he just thought it it wasn't going to work. And and the you know. It was part of this this thing that the left thought it was at its nadir. If it hadn't worked in 2007 and 2010, why was it going to work now when the left, as far as they were concerned, was even weaker? Um, but then there was this the, the fateful campaign group meeting, I think on June the 3rd, 2015, um, where basically they all, Diane Abbott, uh, Kelvin Hopkins, Jeremy Corbyn, John McDonnell, Clive Lewis, Cat Smith, all those people sat around a table and John McDonnell said, I don't want to do it. Diane Abbott said, I don't want to do it because I'm running for London mayor. Um, and then they, uh, John McDonnell turned to Jeremy Corbyn and just said completely flatly, and it, well, he, he imitated what he said to me, just said, it's your turn. And Jeremy Corbyn just said, well, all right, if, uh, if you're going to support me, then I'll, I'll do it. And everybody said, well, if you're willing to do it, we'll get behind you. So that's where he decided to stand. Um, I mean, it was probably a tokenistic gesture at the time they didn't i don't think even jeremy corbyn thought there was any chance of getting 35 nominations to get on the ballot certainly didn't think there was going to be any chance of winning um but by then but at that point he was in the race and what had happened was that at the same time this kind of this this grassroots pressure had been building outside of the of the kind of parliamentary labor party of the parliamentary left um these as i say groups like red labor the petitions were starting saying we we demand an anti-austerity 
candidate for Labour leader to, to stand. People like uh, Michelle Ryan, who's now a, a kind of prominent Corbyn supporter, um, were doing that. Just ordinary Labour Party members, not you know, not big figures on the left. Um, and yeah, that that pressure then developed into the nomination. It flowed into the nominations campaign and basically hammered Labour MPs, anybody who was likely to nominate Jeremy Corbyn, with you know, so they were just throwing stuff at them on social media, emails, and everything to try and get them to. So nominate. very quickly. Next question, social media, what kind of a role did it play in building the momentum necessary, the unlikely momentum in Jeremy Corbyn getting those 35 nominations? How key was not just social media, but emails, digital media generally, new media? Yeah, I think, well, everybody involved in the Corbyn campaign says it was crucial, and that includes people who aren't necessarily that overwhelmed with, you know, people like John Lansman, who are from a previous generation, but they, they all say it was, it was crucial. And, I mean, what it did was, I don't think it, the, the right, the Labour right, thinks that Labour MPs who nominated Corbyn just wilted under the pressure of all these emails. I don't think that's correct. I, I think they've got a bit more about them. Maybe I'm being too generous, but I think they've got a bit more about them than just to wilt under the pressure of a few tweets. But I think it showed, it demonstrated that there was a constituency for a left candidate, that, that there was a demand, a need for, as they, their strategy, which was set from the beginning, was give us a debate. Let's broaden the debate. And there was obviously, you know, that could be denied if there was no social media pressure because who are these people? Well, you say you need a debate, but you know, you're the left, you're weak. Who are you? You haven't got any supporters. Nobody could say that when there was all this social media stuff going on. And I think that it gave MPs who were likely to do that, who had their own political calculations, a lot of them didn't like the way that the, the debate was careering to the right. They didn't like the way that Miliband's legacy was being trashed. And it gave them an people excuse. People like Sadiq Khan. People like Sadiq Khan, although he also wanted votes for his London mayoral candidacy. Mm. But there were a lot of people like that, kind of soft left type people, who were, yeah, frightened at the, at the at the trajectory of the debate, thinking it was going to become Blairism plus. You know, it was it was looking like that was the way it was going. Um, and having Jeremy Corbyn on the ballot, a left a left putting left arguments was a way to rebalance that contest to bring it back to the left a bit, with no, as far as they were concerned, no downside because it wasn't any chance he was going to win. You say that it was Andy Burnham's to lose the leadership race. Uh, yet he threw it away decisively, not only amongst the membership, but also with the unions. Uh, can you talk about that briefly? And what role did the welfare bill play? And was this approach against his better instincts? Were people talking in his ear? Uh, it's difficult to tell what Andy Burnham's actual instincts are because he's been everything in his career. He started off seen, being seen as a Blairite and he ended up in 2015 being seen as soft left. In the, in the leadership campaign at the beginning, he went to the right very dramatically, um, no, just without any ambiguity. He went to Ernst & Young in the city and did a speech about how benefit claimants shouldn't be given an easy ride and businessmen were heroes. Actually said businessmen were heroes. Um, so he was very, uh, and he said the mansion, t he trashed the mansion tax saying it, it had been uh, politics of envy, which really annoyed a lot of people who were putative supporters of his, who were, you know, soft left type people. Um, and basically his calculation was, as a member of his campaign team told the New Statesman, um, where else does the left have to go? You know? This was Michael Duggar that said this? It was anonymous in the New Statesman, it's probably Michael Duggar. Um, where else does the left have to go? Uh, I mean, how stupid is this guy? I mean, Michael Duggar is somebody who in the last couple of months, last year really, I, I never heard of the guy before, and you realise the guy is phenomenally stupid. I mean, you've got a field of four candidates basically on the right, and then the guy who's in the centre, like you say, soft left, but also has a, you know, he really could be a 
cross-party candidate, can appeal to the unions, telegenic, can appeal to the membership, was excellent on the NHS, excellent on Hillsborough. So he has that single-issue vibe, a bit like Stella Creasy, a bit like Tom Watson, despite them not having great politics. Yeah. And yet he tacks right. I mean, it just doesn't yeah. make any sense whatsoever. Well, it made sense in the, con- in the context of the nominations battle because he wanted to have the most nominations from Labour MPs he could. And obviously they're all over on the right, so you have to go over to the right to get them. He, he didn't want to be in a position where he got less than Cooper because then he would seem like he wasn't the favourite. So he'd seem like he was being elected against the will of the, the, the bulk of the parliamentary party. And that was the same with the unions. His attitude to the unions was, I don't want your money. I don't want your support. Um, you know, go away. <laughs> Stop hassling me. Um, it was really a big insult to trade unions, what, the way he responded. This was in the very earliest days of the, of the race. And it was the same thing. He didn't want to be Ed Miliband Mark II. He didn't want to be constantly derided by The Sun and David Cameron as a puppet of the unions and as only being in position because the unions backed him. So he, he went you know, too far out of his way to, to alienate them. His campaign manager was a guy called John Lee Howe, I think that's how you pronounce it. He, he went on to manage Owen Smith's 2016 campaign. So this guy's, you know, if you ever want to lose a campaign, you have to hire this guy. Um, and that's basically, the, 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 that's the way that he, his campaign was set from the beginning. He gradually moved left as the support of Corbyn became apparent and he realised he had to change tack. Um, started adopting policies for railway nationalisation and things like that. But then the welfare bill, as you said, this this bill brought in by the government in uh, June 2015, which um, cut child tax credits and lots of other things. There was leaked civil service advice saying that the measures would plunge 40,000 children into poverty. Um, it, it, this was anathema to Labour members. This is, you know, the, this is a deliberate attempt to make the people that, who Labour members do their politics for poorer. Um, it should have been, as John McDonnell says when I interviewed him, it should have been there should have been no calculation if you're the Labour Party. You don't you don't go along with this legislation. Harriet Harman went along with it. Burnham followed suit, even though he was objecting all the way, and that just finished off his candidacy. Harriet Harman was also interim leader immediately following the defeat yeah. in 2010. You write that she was almost scarred from that experience because. Uh, the Tories very early on of the coalition, very early on, wanted to blame Labour for the deficit, rising public debt, the financial crisis. And because Harman didn't really, why should she? She was only the interim leader, uh, didn't really have an answer for that. She felt almost that some blame should be apportioned to her because that uh, that agenda was legitimised very quickly through ideas, narratives of Labour failing on the economy ahead and around the time of the global financial crisis. And then she basically uh, took all that energy and anxiety with her mm. and then said, this time around, her second period as interim leader said, I'm not going to allow the Tories to define us as weak on welfare reform. Yeah, but it was politically monumentally stupid. So um, she's been monumentally stupid in a political sense as interim leader twice. Well, the thing is... Her, she got a lot to... I mean, she, that's a lot. That's a lot to blame somebody <laughs> for, isn't it, though? But her calculation was flawed because she said that after 2010, she, was, she said she was traumatised because the Tories established this narrative that the, the recession was due to Labour overspending yeah. and she didn't do enough to, to counter it. And then after 2015, she said we, she thought it was the same scenario. The, the Tories are trying to paint Labour as profligate. We can't let them do this, so therefore we have to support their welfare bill showing that we're tough on, on benefits claimants. The trouble was both things were just conceding ground to a Tory narrative. It, the, the two things were not the same. You know, if you concede ground to a Tory narrative and they say public spending caused a recession, you know, that's a disaster. If you then concede ground to a Tory narrative saying um, everybody on benefits is cheating the system and we have to clamp down on it, 
that's and and Labour's party of welfare. That's just conceding ground again. And and it just it was a yeah a disastrous decision from her point of view because it basically put rocket boosters under to borrow Tony Blair's term put rocket boosters under Jeremy Corbyn's uh, campaign. So the welfare reform bill was the decisive moment. We've not got long left, just under ten minutes left. You're listening to our FM. Great conversation we're having right now with Alex Nuns. If you're listening, the show will be available on SoundCloud and iTunes and, of course, NavarroMedia.com later on today. Uh, I've got a few questions left. I've got three questions. I, I really doubt we're going to be able to get through them. Firstly, I suppose we could, this can integrate another question as well. Why did the Blairites so completely fail in discrediting Corbyn uh, and then lose to him? And I suppose you can integrate the other question, which is why did another media attacks, particularly from the left, uh, actually work? So the Guardian, the Independent, in hoc with many of these Blairite MPs, the likes of Polly Toynbee, who ended up backing Yvette Cooper, who's more of a Brownite, in fairness. Why did none of, I mean, you don't expect the son of the mayor of the Express to work with the Labour selectorate, but nothing even from the left media worked. Why was that the case? I think that, uh, I think this is another area where social media was, was crucial because in the past, these would have been probably shattering attacks. If you, if you, if you're reading the, if you, all you have as your kind of window on the world is TV and the Guardian or TV and the New Statesman or whatever, and everything you see and read is, Jeremy Corbyn's useless, Jeremy Corbyn's not going to win, blah, blah, blah. You know, you believe it. But when you have this alternative media, then suddenly there's loads of people. You realise there are people in all parts of the country who think the same way you do, and you're suddenly connected to them. Then these shattering attacks from the media are actually transformed into chances for galvanisation, that, that everybody can then get angry with, with The Guardian, and that actually brings in more support. I mean, you bring up some data, I think it's on page 235, 236, where The Guardian works out that around 25% of their UK audience is either favours Labour or Labour members, supports Labour, explicitly votes for Labour frequently, uh, strong Labour voters, therefore, all Labour members, 25%. And, yeah, like I say, zero impact, really, on the outcome. I mean, probably actually less than zero in so much as they bolster his campaign. And like you say, that probably isn't possible... 10 years earlier and how that interacts with the point about the Blairites is that their primary resource wasn't it was access to media yeah. and all of a sudden that didn't matter so much yeah that's one of the things that, that, that um, damaged them I mean with the Blairites it's a more complicated I won't go into it in, in detail it's more complicated how they came to be um, much less powerful than they thought I think there's a bigger thing going on whereby I mean we've seen across Europe um, the collapse of social democracy the collapse of, of ne- neoliberalised social democracy I should say um, which the Blairites were obviously a, a prime example of. Um, in Britain, we didn't realise, I don't think, that that had collapsed quite as spectacularly as it had because it was un- operating under the shell of, of Labour, which is seen as a traditionally social democratic party. But the leadership election revealed that that strand of thinking had collapsed in terms of support within the Labour Party. Obviously, Liz Kendall ended up getting 4.5%. People say it would have been a bit more because Blairites voted for Yvette Cooper. Yvette Cooper only got 17%, and most of those were not Blairites. So... They they completely collapse in terms of support. I think that there are multiple reasons, as you say. Media access becomes slightly less important in a party context, context um, because of social media. Um, they lost the leader's office, first to Gordon Brown, then to Ed Miliband. Their project was a kind of centralised, uh, controlling project in the Labour Party. Tony Blair says... He said at one point in the early days, New Labour is the smallest political party. It's the newest political party on the scene and it's the smallest. It's about five people. That's what Blair said. And they did it by controlling the party machine um, and um, negating party democracy, you know, emasculating confidence and all that kind of stuff, all the stuff that we know about. Um, but if you lose the levers of power, if you lose the leader's office and you can't quite as easily direct the party machine to do what you want, then you're in trouble. So I think that that's... And then, of course, there's the ideological factors... 
the financial crash um, basically completely pulls the rug under the, the deal that, that New Labour was built upon, where you give the city the right to take ever greater risks as long as it cuts you in on the rewards as the state and you can redistribute some of their tax revenue. Um, well, after the financial crash, that doesn't seem to be a very good plan. It leads to disaster and chaos. Um, the Iraq war, I don't think we can underestimate just the, the monumental disgust that so many Labour members have for the fact that they were led into the Iraq war. Their party was was tarnished by the Iraq war, by the Blairites. So there are lots of reasons that came together for why the Blairites completely collapsed and, and, and it was just spectacular in 2015. From what you write, the Labour purge the first time around was completely overstated. Um, can you talk about that for a minute or two? Well, the numbers weren't very high. I mean, the, the thing is, there was a lot of attention because I think it suited the the Labour machine in a kind of weird way to have people think that this was a, a really big exercise where they were getting rid of a huge percentage of the of the of the membership as they actually did a year later. Um, but it, at the time, they, they in the 2015 race, it was I can't remember the exact figure, like 3,000 something they released, and then it went up to 4,000 by the end of the of the contest of people who were purged for not sharing the aims and values of the Labour Party. Most of those were not um, Trotskyists. Most of those were Green Party supporters. Um, people who you would have thought, progressive people you would have thought would, a progressive party would want to attract. In fact, that was the entire point of the registered supporter system, was to um, bring in people from outside the party. I was a Green Party member at the time. I was a registered supporter. There you go. Um, were you purged? No, no, no. I, I, I phoned up the the, the, ra- the, you know, the relevant people in the Green Party. I said, can I do this? They said, yes. I spoke to the relevant people in the Labour Party. Can I do this? Yes. Okay, great. That shows how chaotic the system was, because other people, I mean, I think... They had a criteria that even if you just voted for the Green Party, some some people were purged, being purged for just having voted yeah. for the Green Party. I mean, I, I had I never had stood for office. Uh, I think that was a big one. I can understand that, right? If you're if you're running to be yeah. a councillor somewhere as a Green, and then you want to vote in the Labour leadership three months later, I get that. But I just said no. I'm a Green Party member. I have been for a couple of months. Uh, okay, well, I mean that's you know. But again, you're just talking to somebody at the end of a phone line, right? It's yeah, not, sure. That's uh, that's not how bureaucracy but, works. But the thing is, it did. It, there were real injustices, so it wasn't nothing. Mark Walker, right, was a great example. Yeah, and it, so it created a lot of anger. But it was kind of from the Labour Party machine's point of view, or from the Labour, Labour rights point of view, the worst of all worlds, because they didn't get rid of enough people to make any difference at all to the actual outcome. Um, but they created the impression of a fix. And actually, there were other things going on. You know, I mean, the best one was Peter Mandelson, who was he came out with this big plan that if all three other candidates stood down. Um, the race, could, the leadership election, would be called off, and that's the way to avoid Corbyn winning. Until somebody from the Labour Party pointed out to him that if all three other candidates stood down, Jeremy Corbyn would automatically become leader. <laughs> he hadn't thought about that one. Um, slight error in his calculation. Good old Peter. Um, final question. We've just got a couple of minutes left. Uh, Corbyn was totally unprepared for winning. I think you're quite clear about that in the in the in the latter part of the book. Your account seems to claim that there was no strategy for the day after. Uh, and once he had assumed the mantle of party leader. Is that true? And what were the biggest mistakes made in those first few vital weeks? Um, well, they did have a strategy, which was to get John McDonnell as shadow chancellor and turn the Labour Party into an anti-austerity party. That was their prime objective, was McDonnell as shadow chancellor. And that encountered resistance from lots of people. Not, I mean, obviously, the Labour right said, if you do this, it's going to be disaster and we're all going to leave. But... Um, People like uh, Len McCuskey, the, the unions were against McDonnell being show chancellor. They had to battle the unions to get that. Owen Jones, it's going to be a catastrophe if we have the leader of the Labour Party and show chancellor. So that was the, an accomplishment then? That was a big accomplishment. Yeah. It was a big achievement. Um, as a result of that, he he um, was less concerned with the rest of the shadow cabinet. He went for this collegiate approach of um, 
bringing in everybody from across the spectrum. And I think it was obviously a massive mistake to leave Tony Benn, especially uh, Tony Benn, God, that would have been good, leave Hillary Benn uh, as, as Shadow Foreign Secretary. It's the original sin of Jeremy Corbyn as Labour Party was generosity. Surprise, surprise. Alex Nunce, you've been fantastic. Thank you. The book is absolutely wonderful. Please buy it. What a great Christmas present it's going to be. My name is Aaron Bastani. This is Navara FM. See you same time, same place next week. Bye. Navara FM is brought to you by Navara Media. To find out more about our work, head to navaramedia.com. If you've particularly enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes and, as well as subscribing to the show, leave a review. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navara Media. Media for a different politics.